0: Up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an orthopedic surgeon dispels some of the most persistent myths about back pain and offers his advice about treatment options.
1: The MRI will tell us uh, that there's no infection or there's no tumor or there's no uh, other dangerous condition uh, that might be affecting the spine.
0: The chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate provides an overview
2: of today's most popular birth control options. Hormonal methods are the ones that most women are familiar with overall. The most commonly used and understood is the birth control pill. And we'll hear from Syracuse University head football coach, Dino
0: Babers, as his team prepares for its first game of the season.
3: You want a team full of achievers, and then you want a team full of people who when people tell them no, they don't even hear that.
0: All that and a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink Air, your chance to explore health, science and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about the most popular birth control options from Upstate's Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Then, Syracuse University Head Football Coach Dino Babers joins us to talk about motivating student-athletes. But first, an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in the spine discusses what you need to know about back pain. One of the most common medical problems in the United States is back pain. It may come on suddenly and be severe, or it may be something that flares up from time to time. Here to talk about what to do about back pain is orthopedic surgeon Dr. Daryl Dykes. Thank you for being here.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: So you're a surgeon, um, but you readily say the majority of people with back pain do not need surgery, right?
1: Absolutely true.
0: Well, let's talk about how one goes about determining, you know, what's wrong with their back if they've got pain.
1: Sure. Well, just as you mentioned, back pain is very, very common in in human societies. Uh, As a matter of fact, it probably is one of the most common reasons of all reasons that someone will go see a doctor. Hmm. And it might be secondary to the common cold or something like that. But the good news is that the vast majority of people with back pain can be treated with very, very simple uh, measures, uh, usually rest, anti-inflammatories. And only a small percentage of people will ever actually require, uh, you know, advanced treatments like injections or surgery.
0: Okay. Um is there ever a time when back pain's an emergency? Absolutely. So when would that, what are some of the symptoms of?
1: Sure. So there are uh, conditions that we call red flags, for instance. So patients who have uh, very severe back pain that is out of proportion to what you might you know, expect from a, a simple lifting or a bending uh, issue. Uh, if you've got a fever, if the uh, back pain is associated with any weakness in the arms or the legs, uh, numbness or tingling uh, in the extremities around, uh, you know, the, the perianal region, so bowel and bladder issues, all of those things could signify a much more serious condition uh, that does require, you know, immediate and professional evaluation.
0: Okay. Well, how do you do that evaluation? When someone comes to you with pain, um, back pain, saying it's severe, how do you how do you go about figuring that out?
1: Sure. Well, one of the things that is um, very difficult to manage sometimes, and, and even doctors have trouble dealing with this sometimes, is when is the right time to get uh, imaging, like x-rays or MRI scans. Mm-hmm. And what we know is, for the most part, if uh, patients have back pain that comes on, uh, for non-traumatic issues, so, so not after a big injury or something like that. If the back pain is mild to moderate and doesn't last uh, for very long, there's typically no advantage to getting x-rays or MRI scans. We typically save those things for uh, pain that lasts for four to six weeks or more. Uh, other than that, what doctors will do is do a complete physical examination, make sure that there aren't any problems with the nerves, Um and from that point, uh, the patient's history and physical examination will usually dictate, as I mentioned, these simple non-operative measures.
0: Most patients are going to go to their primary care provider with the back pain complaint first, right?
1: Sure. And that's, that's appropriate.
0: And then how do, how do they decide whether to send that person to see someone like yourself?
1: Well, certainly the primary care doctor will and, and should rule out those dangerous conditions that I talked about. Uh, But when those dangerous conditions are off the table or not part of the consideration, if a patient has persistent pain that lasts for four to six weeks or more, or things that are not responding to the treatments that the primary care physician offers, that's the time to call a spine doctor.
0: So do you look at things differently depending on where along the spine the pain is? Because the spine's divided into... Three regions?
1: Sure, yeah. So typically we think of the spine in three or some say four regions, and that's the cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and sacral regions. Um, The cervical is the neck, thoracic is the mid-back, lumbar is your low back, and sacrum is the tailbone. Okay. Most of the time uh, when patients come in with with back pain issues, they're in the low back or in the neck. Uh, It's much less common to have uh, back pain issues in the thoracic region.
0: Well, why is that?
1: Well, that's a great question. Part of it is due to just the way we're designed. So as you know, the uh, bones in your spine and the mid-back are all connected to your rib cage.
0: Okay. Does that give more support? It's
1: much more stable and much less flexible part of your spine. So in the neck and the low back, obviously those are the parts of the spine that move a lot more and they're subject to more mechanical stresses over life and they tend to have the most problems.
0: Okay. Well, I'd like to ask about some of the myths and misconceptions about back pain. I've got a lot of questions for you on that. Um, Starting off with, will the imaging scans tell you as the surgeon or doctor what the problem is?
1: Well, we've gotten very, very good with imaging these days. Uh, Plain x-rays are usually the the place that a doctor will start. And you can see on plain x-rays whether there are fractures or deformities or other major issues But it's typically the MRI scan that gives us the most information. On the MRI, we can see and rule out a lot of those dangerous things that I talked about. So the MRI will tell us uh, that there's no infection or there's no tumor or there's no uh, other dangerous condition uh, that might be affecting the spine. And it can usually help us pinpoint where a patient's pain is originating. And then also give us very, very good ideas about the options for treating it.
0: So you may need both x-rays and MRIs? Typically we do both, yes. Um, If a patient has pain, does that mean that they have damage or that there's been an injury?
1: No, not necessarily. As as I mentioned earlier, uh, almost every adult will have at least one episode of back pain in their lives. And that's typically related to just normal wear and tear uh, type conditions in the spine. It doesn't mean that there's anything dramatically wrong. It doesn't mean that there's an injury. It's only when that pain is persistent, so it lasts for long periods of time, or when it's recurrent. So this is something that happens over and over again and doesn't respond to those simple measures, uh, that it's a a more serious problem.
0: Uh, Is it true that exercising or lifting weights will make back pain worse?
1: Actually, uh, if you are in one of these episodes where you're in the midst of a serious back pain episode, uh, certain activities can make it worse. Uh, So if you're having back pain at the time and you do a lot of bending, lifting, twisting or jarring type activities that can uh, cause more pain, it doesn't necessarily damage things. It doesn't necessarily make the problem worse, but it can cause more discomfort. Cause more
0: discomfort. Sure.
1: But on the other side of the coin, when you're not in a back pain episode, when things are good. It's actually exercise in motion that will help prevent uh, these episodes okay. of back pain. So That's it's very cool. important to, you know, maintain good core strength and general conditioning to avoid back pain.
0: So how important is posture in pain prevention?
1: You know, it, there's been a lot of debate uh, about that. And, you know, when I grew up, everyone was, you know, told in school to maintain a good posture. And we were taught that um, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, What is probably related to that, however, is when you have poor posture, you probably have poor core strength.
0: Ah, okay.
1: And that poor core strength can be one of the contributing factors to back pain. So if
0: you strengthen your core, your posture kind of improves on its own. Okay. Um, The firmness of the mattress you sleep on does that matter?
1: I don't think it does. Uh, Again, it's another area that's been hotly debated. Uh, What I advise my patients is you sleep on the mattress that's most comfortable to you. And some people, you know, like a firmer mattress, uh, a less firm mattress, but it really is about getting, you know, the most comfortable thing. And there's no evidence that any of that makes any long-term difference in your back health.
0: Despite what all the ads tell us. Despite the ads. Believe it or not. Um, Well, how much does being overweight influence back pain?
1: Yeah, so uh, weight is a a factor. Again, uh, a lot of these conditions are, you know, just mechanical loads and mechanical stresses on the spine. So the more weight... Uh, the spine is carrying, uh, obviously that puts greater stress and it can contribute to this degenerative process. Uh, the other thing, and again, I go back to general fitness, being overweight is definitely associated with being unfit and and probably having poor core strength as well. And I think, you know, the, the, uh, fitness aspect of it is probably more important than the weight itself, but they are correlated.
0: Okay. Good to know. Well, I've got some more questions. I want to talk about treatment, but first, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Daryl Dykes. So, um, whether there's going to be surgery or not, um, if someone is in pain, they're liable to seek, you know, relief from maybe medication. So, what do you recommend? What are your thoughts on the use of narcotics?
1: Uh, as, we, as you know, narcotic. Uh, use, and in some cases overuse, has been a very, very serious problem um, in this country. And we definitely like to minimize the use of narcotic medications when, when possible. And again, one of the things that, that is just very, very real from dealing with patients, when you have this severe pain, and sometimes back pain can be absolutely severe and debilitating, it's also very scary. And so when patients come in and have this pain and have this belief that this is something that's just not going to go away, that they're going to be plagued with for a long period of time, uh, they often look for uh, narcotic medication as as a way to, to feel better, and that's understandable. I think one of the things that we have to do is try to rely on education, you know, teaching patients that this is a limited problem. It's probably going to get better. And most of the time, simpler measures like anti-inflammatory medicines, So ibuprofen, Motrin, Advil, those things will, will help, um, along with, you know, short-term activity restrictions and trying to, as much as possible, avoid narcotics.
0: Okay. Uh, do you ever recommend things like acupuncture or chiropractic?
1: Absolutely. I, I think, uh, and I, and I tell my patients all the time, uh, I look for any possible solution to this problem that's safe and then has the opportunity you know, to be effective. Um, I don't know of, of actual studies. Um, there are some studies that have begun to show some benefit uh, to these nontraditional, so to speak, uh, treatments like acupuncture and so forth. But I have personally uh, had a number of patients who found a whole lot of relief and a whole lot of success for treating the symptoms, like in the acute phase of their back pain episodes.
0: Okay. And then there are some cases, though, that still need surgery, right? Sure. What are some examples of um, things that would require surgery?
1: So, of course, those emergency situations that I mentioned earlier, if there's an unstable fracture of the spine or someone has an infection or a tumor, those typically require surgery. There are other uh, times when the condition causing the back pain also puts enough pressure on the nerves or the spinal cord that that could cause some neurologic damage or some irreversible damage like paralysis or weakness. Uh, We typically operate on those conditions. Uh, certainly, uh, if, if, a, if someone has enough pressure on the nerves at the lower end of the spine that cause problem with their bowel or bladder, uh, that's an emergency situation that we will operate on uh, quickly uh, to avoid long-term complications. And then more generally, if patients have just persistent pain that doesn't get better despite our non-surgical treatments, or if this is a recurring thing that happens over and over and over again and significantly interferes with their activities or quality of life, then that becomes a a reason to consider surgery.
0: Okay. All right. Can you talk about the minimally invasive laser spine surgery options that are out there?
1: So spine surgery has come a long way since I started doing this over 20 years ago. And some of the things that we're doing routinely today weren't even possible 20 years ago. Other things that we were doing 20 years ago have become much easier, much safer, and more effective with advances in technology. However, there are some technologies that have not really panned out to be as promising as as people sometimes advertise them to be. Uh, There's uh, one term that's called minimally invasive surgery, and you you can't avoid hearing this term if you research anything about back pain. Uh, Minimally invasive surgery quite simply means that doctors try to do the same types of surgery or achieve the same goals of surgery through smaller incisions with less damage to surrounding tissues and less damage or downside for the patient. That's a goal of all surgery. So all surgery is is minimally invasive or should be minimally invasive. Um, And so we practice minimally invasive techniques and, again, are able to do much bigger things through much smaller holes uh, with advances in technology. Laser is another thing that is very, very common uh, in the media. If you, if you look online or you watch television or so forth, the bottom line is a laser is just a cutting device. It's like a scalpel. It's like any other cutting device that surgeons will use to open or cut or dissect tissues. There's nothing magical or uh, unique uh, about a laser in terms of being able to cut tissues that way. And what we have demonstrated over time is that there's really no demonstrable benefit. There's no benefit that we've been able to find to using laser techniques in spine surgery over more traditional techniques. Um, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of you know, experts who, who do a lot of this work, uh, it's more of a marketing gimmick than it is uh, beneficial. And there's actually even been some evidence that some of these laser techniques are more harmful than they are helpful.
0: So just because it's new doesn't mean it's better.
1: That's always true uh, in medicine. Okay. Uh, new doesn't equal better.
0: Well, in the very little bit of time we have left, I wanted to ask uh, about the you know traumatic injuries that leave people paralyzed. Do you think in your lifetime that we're going to see new ways of treating or reversing such injuries so that patients would be you know regain the ability to walk or function?
1: Sure, there there's a whole lot of research and very exciting things going on. Uh, First of all, in preventing those injuries. Uh, But then second of all, when they do occur, early uh, interventions or early treatments to try to minimize the long-term damage or long-term effects, some of that is in the realm of stem cell research or different medications, new medications that help uh, protect uh, the nerves. So to answer your question most directly, we are making incredible progress and preventing or minimizing long-term neurologic deficits after trauma, and I do think that there's a day coming, uh, probably in the not too distant future, where we're gonna have much, much better outcomes for patients with those injuries.
0: I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Dr. Darrell Dykes. He's an orthopedic surgeon at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Help Link On Air. up next an assessment of birth control options on upstates healthlink on air Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're talking about birth control options with Dr. Renee Mestad. She's an assistant professor and division chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I thought I'd like to ask you about each type of birth control available today um, and then sort of the advantages and disadvantages of each. So um, does it make sense to start with natural methods? We can start with natural methods. Okay. Are
2: those the most or least effective? So um, as a practicing OBGYN who who focuses on family planning, natural methods are actually our least favorite methods of contraception. They work – what they generally as, – as most people understand natural methods, that includes what we call the rhythm method, um, which encompasses several different um, – Ways of tracking a woman's periods, so women obviously now have a lot of tracking apps where they can figure out when their periods start, and they can help them determine what their ovulation, when they're going to ovulate. Ovulation is when a woman becomes fertile. That's when an egg is released from the ovary and is able to be fertilized by sperm.
0: So if you time intercourse opposite of that, exactly, the hope is that
2: you would would miss your miss. fertile fertile period, fertile exactly. time, I should say. Having sex in the few days before ovulation is actually what dramatically increases the risk of pregnancy or the success if you're trying to get pregnant. The problem with these methods, though, is that they require a woman to have a very regular cycle. So she has to have her period every 28 days or every 35 days, however many days in between the beginning of one period and the next period. Is that true
0: for many women?
2: No. No. And this is why it's not a favorite of ours. Um, Even with some of the tracking apps, we found most of them really aren't very um, accurate. But a lot of women have various health problems that interfere with regular periods. A lot of women have um, erratic lifestyles. They travel a lot. Um, Women who are are trying to aggressively gain or lose weight are going to have irregular periods. Um, Women with irregular sleep cycles will often have irregular periods. So... It's not a particularly effective means of preventing pregnancy. Additionally, it requires the couple to be compliant. So, if they decide to have sex during her fertile time, then he needs to use a, a condom, or they need to use some other barrier method of contraception, and that so that requires compliance um, by both partners. Um, another natural method, though, is lactational amenorrhea, um, known as LAM. So that's after you've given birth and Ex- you're breastfeeding. Exactly the and theory that you can't get pregnant while you're breastfeeding. So as long as a woman is exclusively breastfeeding, now she can pump and and feed breast milk, bottle feed breast milk, but she cannot use any supplementation, no formula or anything else. So as long as she's exclusively breastfeeding, no supplementation whatsoever, um, it is effective for six months. Oh, so, but okay. after that, it it doesn't work very reliably.
0: Okay. All right, so maybe are those um, sort of the least effective? Yes, in they the are. Scheme of things. Okay.
2: Yes. So, uh, what about hormonal methods? So, hormonal methods are the ones that um, most women are, are familiar with overall. Um, but it's the, the most commonly used and understood is the pill, the birth control pill. Um, and the birth control pill, as all of us understand it, is the combined oral contraceptive. It contains both estrogen and a progestin and these hormones uh, prevent ovulation, thicken cervical mucus, uh, which are the two mechanisms of action of how they work. Uh, they require a woman to swallow the pill every day at roughly the same time every day, and the hormones go throughout the, the bloodstream and throughout her body to affect how um, her ovaries function. They're also very useful for uh, women who have heavy menstrual periods by decreasing the amount of bleeding that they have, they're very helpful for women who have frequent ovarian cysts. They, By suppressing ovulation or preventing ovulation, they, women just don't form the cysts as a result. Um, they're exceptionally helpful for women who have painful periods, women who have endometriosis, um, because by stopping ovulation, all of those other processes are not initiated. Um, they're very useful for, for female athletes um, who need to not have heavy periods, they need to know when their periods are going to happen to um, prevent interfering with, with competitive um, activities. They really are a, a boon to women ultimately. Some downsides for women who have um, uh, a genetic risk of um, developing blood clots, so um, that they have some kind of some abnormalities in their DNA that makes their blood clot more easily. Um, the most common being the Factor, factor V Leiden mutation, these women have an increased risk of, of developing those clots both in their lungs, their, their legs, um, their brain, or even their heart um, if they use combined oral contraceptives. And additionally, women who smoke over the age of 35 have an increased risk of stroke. Women with migraines that have the aura or the, kind of the pre-migraine warning signs have an increased risk of stroke. So we don't recommend those methods for, for um, these women.
0: Now, is there a, a risk for um, breast cancer
2: later on? Wasn't that a concern? So that, that concern goes back and forth. Okay. Um, most recently, we have found that women have a slightly increased risk of developing breast cancer, particularly with long-term use. Um, the risk decreases and goes back to normal um, after women stop using the um, estrogen-based met- methods um, over time. But that risk, it seems like every few years it goes back and forth. Some years it says it's a little bit increased. Other years it says it's a little bit bit decreased. Some years it just, it's neutral. So it's, at this stage of the game, I have a difficult time recommending women not use estrogen-based methods when they're 20, 19, 15 Mm -hmm. years old to prevent the possibility of having um, breast cancer in the future. There are so many other risk factors to breast cancer, and this is just one of them. Okay. But it's probably something to discuss with your doctor individually. Yes. So Yes, and most women don't use birth control pills for 20, 30 years, right. ultimately. They use them for, for even a few months when they're sexually active, and they go back and forth between them.
0: So in addition to the pill, are there other hormonal methods?
2: Yes, so about oh, almost 20 years ago, we developed the patch in the ring. Um, and they both also have combined hormones, both estrogen and progestin. The patch is effective for one week at a time, uh, so it gets changed out every week. Um, and it is, it is a patch that goes on the arm or the hip or the back. Um, Some other discreet. Back. Yes. Okay. Um, unfortunately, it matches nobody's skin tone. <laughs> um, and then there's the vaginal ring, which fits up inside the vagina. And it can be left in place for between three and four weeks. And it gets changed out every fourth week, um, replaced every fourth week. So they, again, they have the same um, side effects, uh, contraindications as um, oral contraceptives. The advantage of these is they don't require, um, they can be useful for women who have erratic lifestyles. So when I was a resident and I was on call every third night, we frequently forgot our birth control pills for our call night and then got home at 5.30 the next day, fell asleep and therefore went two nights without our birth control pill. Patch of the ring is great for women who have lifestyles like that. I had a patient who used to travel to Germany monthly for business. And she could never remember, she was having difficulty with the time, the time zone time changes. Time zone, sure. Right. So with the patch, she didn't have to worry about, you know, take, uh, missing her dose by 6, 8, 12 hours.
0: Now, you mentioned the ring, and it made me think of intrauterine. Are, are intrauterine devices still used or not?
2: Yes, they've actually gained in popularity um, over the past 10 years. So um, about 10, let's see, in 2007, um, about 1% of the female population was using intrauterine devices, and currently almost 14% of the population are using intrauterine devices, and they do require... The downside of those is they're very expensive, and they do require a healthcare provider to insert them up inside the uterus. The upside is that they're good between um, anywhere from 3 to 10 years, depending on which which type of intrauterine mm. device a woman gets, and... Um, they don't require prescriptions. They don't requ- once they're placed, they don't require refills once they're inserted. Um, the great thing about them is they, if a woman is in an accident with her car and has a $500 deductible to pay for her car and therefore has no money to pay for anything else for the next three or four months, She still has her contraception. still covered. If she loses her insurance, she still has her contraception. Her provider does not hunt her down and remove it if she loses her insurance. So she's going to be covered, which is particularly useful seeing as how there's the impending collapse of the Affordable Care Act. Right. So women are going to have to start thinking harder again about their contraception and how they're going to afford it. Well,
0: and one other um, uh, method would be barrier methods or condoms, right? Yes. That's one other. Because um, I wanted to ask you, can you recommend one type of method over another for a woman, a young woman who wants to preserve childbearing? Is there a method that's better for that than another? Or do they all work sort of, you know, they someone who wants to put off having children, but wants to have children later
2: on? Yes. So... If you're looking at a young woman who has no intention of getting pregnant for five, six years, um, then I would lean towards an intrauterine device, um, or the, the, um, subdermal contraceptive implant, which is a rod that fits, um, inside the arm. It's a, about the size of a matchstick. It also requires a provider to insert it. It is good for three years. Um, it does have progestin only. It does not have any estrogen, so it's useful for the women who um, can't use estrogens, women with blood clotting disorders, um, etc. cetera. Uh, so that will cover her for three years at that point. It does have the downside of possible bleeding irregularities as far as um, periods are concerned. So some women don't like the unpredictability of the bleeding potentially, but it is also another one of those what we call no-brainer birth control where it doesn't require, you know, refills, um, and you don't lose it if you lose your insurance. So for a woman who, who particularly if she's just starting out her life, has an entry level job that doesn't have good insurance benefits, if she can get one of those, that will have her covered for several years. If this is a woman who's finishing up grad school, got married last year, and plans to start... Trying for pregnancy in six or eight months, I really wouldn't recommend any of those methods. I would lean more towards the um, combined hormonal methods like the pill, the patch, the ring, um, or if her partner is diligent, um, the two of them are remembering barrier methods like condoms. Both male and female condoms are effective when used appropriately. Um, she could also potentially use the sponge um, or the cervical cap if she hasn't had children yet. Um, those can be acquired without, uh, without a prescription just from the drugstore. Um, then there's the diaphragm, which has become harder to find because it has fallen out of popularity because it is a bit cumbersome because it does have to be inserted prior to sex. Um, but that is also another option that they're all very effective if they're used every single time a woman has sex.
0: Wow, lots of options, it sounds like. Yes. So, um, what about we haven't talked about sexually transmitted diseases, but do any of these methods protect against sexually transmitted diseases?
2: So, the most effective way to prevent sexually transmitted diseases is using condoms. Um, both male and female condoms are very effective in preventing um, bacterial diseases like gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, viral diseases like HIV. Um, HPV and herpes are both skin to skin contact diseases, and neither male or female condoms cover all genital skin that is in contact during um, sexual intercourse. But by decreasing the surface area, they will decrease the risk of transmission, but not completely.
0: Mm. Okay. Good to know. And can a young woman, say under the age of 18, um, in New York State, are they able to get birth control without parental consent? Yes, they are. So just set up an appointment with any sort of doctor...
2: Yes. Um, I don't know 100%, but I think there's also ways that it can even make it to the patient, the young woman's um, insurance if it goes to their parents without them knowing exactly what was done. Okay. But a lot of women just choose to use their own money. They'll often go to a, a local Planned Parenthood where they can get a sliding scale costs.
0: Well, I was also going to ask about the cost of these. You mentioned like the IUD being expensive, but does insurance cover birth control for men and women or?
2: So currently with the Affordable Care Act, um, all methods of at least one type of one type of, of contraceptive from all the different methods have to be covered. So at least one t- brand of birth control pills, at least one type of the patch in the ring, which unfortunately is only one type at this point, um, at least one uh, intrauterine device has to be covered, at least one implant has to be covered, um, and without the co-pays. So at this point in time, women who have any of the plans under the Affordable Care Act um, will can access these methods. But... Like the IUD and the uh, subdermal contraceptive implant, they're both they're looking at anywhere between five and hundred and a thousand dollars, so it's a high upfront cost, but that means no copays, nothing else for the next several years. So ultimately, they do um, save the patient money. Um, Colorado performed a study that found that for every dollar the state of Colorado uh, actually was a it was privately funded initially, but for every dollar that was spent on the IUDs and the implant, um, $6 was saved overall, mm. so it makes fiscal sense to have these methods covered because you ultimately have uh, fewer unplanned pregnancies, um, you have fewer teen pregnancies. More importantly, Colorado actually decreased the teen pregnancy rate by twice that of the rest of the country by making these methods, to, the um, IUDs and implants, easily available.
0: Well, there's lots to consider, and it's uh, good to know there's a lot of options for, for people. So I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Dr. Renee Mastod, an assistant professor and division chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers. You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on air. With me in the studio today is a special guest from our Syracuse University neighbor, head football coach Dino Babers. He has some advice for making fitness part of everyday life and for motivating young people today. Thanks for being here. Appreciate Thank you, it. Amber. Thank you. <laughs> Let's start with: uh, Is it true that you've wanted to be a football coach since you were six years old?
3: You know, it is. I uh, I was always uh, asking people what I should be when I grow up, and And, uh, during a quiet moment, the word coach came to me and, uh, I've been striving to try to be a coach ever since. At the time I was a short, fat mama's boy that never left the house and really didn't play a sport. You didn't play football? I really, well, at the time I did not. I had an older brother, a younger brother, three other sisters in my family and my dad and my brother played football at the time, but I did not. I was just stay, I would stay in the house and just watch TV. So, uh, when I, decided that I wanted to be a coach. I really didn't know what sport I was supposed to be a coach in. I just knew that I was supposed to be a coach. And then uh, when my older brother found out that that's what I wanted to be, he started beating me up and forcing me to go outside and and play football with him. Because he said, if you're going to be a coach, you got to learn a sport. I said, but I don't know if that's the sport I'm supposed to learn. But he just wanted me to get me out of the house because I was a mama's boy and I was gaining weight. So he would get me out there and get me playing with the other guys, and eventually uh, football won me over over compared to basketball and track and all those other sports.
0: Did you try those other sports? I sure did. did? I, well, mm-hmm.
3: I was a basketball player, ran track, played football. I tried to do a lot of everything so I could just get, to, uh, get around other coaches to learn their styles, to learn their techniques, to see uh, the good and the bad, to see what I could take with me and what I wanted to leave behind.
0: That's interesting that you had a focus from a young age on what you ultimately wanted to do and you did things to get you to that place. Um, What did you like about football?
3: I thought it was fair. You know, I I grew up in the 60s and uh, grew up on military bases all around the country. I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. I started uh, kindergarten, first grade in Norfolk, Virginia. Graduated high school from San Diego, California, and I lived everywhere in between. And the one thing when you're moving from north to south, east to west during those times is that you realize everything wasn't always fair. And so what? What are you going to do about it now? And I thought that uh, not only football, but I thought that uh, competitions and sports was at least fair. You least had a chance. Even if the officials were a little biased, at least you had a chance to overcome it. So I thought it was the the most fairest thing that you could do and that's what drew me to it drew me towards it.
0: Neat. Well what do you think um the players that you have on the SU football team, what would they say about you? How would they describe you as a coach, do you think?
3: You know, I that's a question that I, I I'll I'm gonna backpedal away from. I think you need to ask them and obviously they're not here. I don't know how people perceive me and I'm not sure it matters that much to me. I have, there's certain things that I want to get done, there's certain things I think that young people need to do. Uh, My dad was military, I was raised in a military fashion and I think that all young people in their quiet way, in their hipster way, the millennial way, I think they all want discipline but you just can't put it on on their, on their plate and say, this is discipline, eat it. It's like peas. You know, it's like spinach. You know, if you tell them it's good for you, they don't want to eat it. And what you got to do is you got to find a way to put some sugar in it, mix it up in some potatoes, some kind of way for that broccoli to go down. And I think if you can find a way to let them swallow it, taste it, savor it, I think they'd all walk away with it and they'd all say that they'd want some of that discipline. And that's what I try to do with young people on my football team and young people that I meet in my life,
0: so discipline is, is part of it. But let's also talk about um, do do you have sort of a secret or a formula for instilling, you know, heart and determination and focus in, in athletes and. Um,
3: you know, I think everybody's hot button is different. You know, like it's like marriage. Everybody, every partner knows who the other partner's hot button, even though they, we both push it too much. You know, I think when it comes to young people, um, my biggest thing is I just don't want to settle and uh, I don't want to be average. And if you're around me, you you need to honor that code that you're not going to be average and you're not going to settle. That means you're not going to settle spiritually. You're not going to settle physically. You're not going to settle mentally. And you're always striving to be a better you. And as long as you wake up every morning with those goals, I think that we can hang out with each other. If you're not like that, you're gonna find me very difficult to deal with.
0: Well that also, as you were saying that, it, it sounds like that would work on the football field, but it would work I don't know, in a classroom or, or on a job site as well, right?
3: Absolutely. I, I think I think that coaches are teachers, except for one I'm a teacher by trade, so if I wasn't a coach, I'd be a teacher. My degrees are in teaching, so the teachers may get mad at what I'm about to say here. But I think that the only difference between coaches and teachers is that coaches aren't allowed to fail anybody. Hmm. A teacher, you can fail someone. There's a bell curve. Somebody's going to get an A and somebody's going to get an F. Somebody's going to get a B and somebody's going to get a D. In coaching, you, everybody has to get an A or everybody has to get a B. Because if there's somebody's gonna get an F or a D, that probably means if you keep that up that you're gonna get fired and you're gonna lose your job. Teachers have tenure, coaches have contracts where they can get bought out and sent down the road. So your, uh, your enthusiasm or the way you go into something is you can't fail, everyone has to pass. And uh, there's just a more sense of urgency of making sure that everyone gets the knowledge that they need to have an opportunity to be successful.
0: So you can't give up on anyone.
3: No, not at all.
0: Right. So do you have some athletes where you've got to um, work a little harder to, to build them up to give them confidence? Do you have do you see confidence as being an issue with some?
3: I, I think that uh, sometimes you got to you got to give them a confidence pill. There's no doubt about it. And then sometimes you know their egos are such that you have to take away their capital E and make it a small E because everyone's allowed to have an ego, but you can't have a billboard-type ego in the room when you're doing something that's done in a selfless manner with it in a team concept. So I think there's times where you need to give some athletes more confidence, and there's some times when you need them to tone it down a little bit so the team aspect can come into play.
0: When you're um, recruiting athletes, I imagine you look at talent and physical skill. And what else do you look for in in the person, sort of? How do you pick someone who's going to be successful?
3: I think what we're doing right now, you need to get into conversations with them about uh, athletics. You need to get into conversations with them about academics. Kind of how everybody wasn't privy to how we started our conversation this morning. But I think you need to learn something about them, you need to learn something about their past. Uh, whether they have came from a single-parent home or two-parent home or no-parent home, and then find out what, how much drive they have in them and how much do they want to be successful, how important it is to them. Because I found out if you give somebody something that they really, really want, they'll normally do anything and everything in their off time to achieve it. And what you want to do is you want a team full of achievers, and then you want a team full of people who, when people tell them no, they don't even hear that, that that no is for somebody else. That's not for me. You just told me. You didn't say no. You just said go, because that's what that word means to me.
0: Neat. Well, as you mentioned, your undergrad, your master's degrees, your background is in education. Did um, part of your training, did you take courses in and did you study how to motivate athletes, or is this something... It sort of comes natural for you. Uh,
3: I think it's a little bit of both. I took every psychology class I could take. Uh, I wanted to be with as many coaches. I said before, I played a lot of sports. I wanted to be with a lot of coaches. Uh, when I played collegiately uh, at the University of Hawaii, I had four, I played four different positions. Uh, and because I wanted to be coached by as many coaches as possible, and coach, being coached by those coaches, some coaches were better than others. And uh, it's one of the things that I tell my players all the time. I said, all, you treat all your players the same, but all your players aren't the same. Some are better than others. It doesn't mean you, tr- they're, you treat them the same, but there's no doubt that some are better than others. Some coaches are better than others, you know. And I'll take it to another step. You know, even though everybody passed, passed the, uh, the, uh, the test to become a doctor, All doctors aren't the same, all teachers aren't the same, all coaches aren't the same, all financial advisors aren't the same. They're all qualified, but they're not the same. Some are better than others. And if you do your homework and you do your research, you'll really find out who's really at the top and who's just surviving.
0: Oh, interesting. Let me remind listeners this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dino Babers, the head football coach for Syracuse University, about making fitness part of everyday life and how to motivate young people today. Um, at your introductory press conference when you came to SU in 2015, you asked everyone to close their eyes and envision a team that could win and bring a din to the carrier dome. Do you believe in sports psychology and the idea of visualization um, being a helpful tool?
3: I do. I think if you can see it, you can achieve it. And uh, I remember being in that room and asking everybody to close, close their eyes. And I remember how long it took for everyone to close their eyes. And it brings me back to sometimes you, you're speaking and people hear you. And, but what I need to do is I need to be speaking and people listening to me. Because just because they hear you doesn't mean they're listening to you. And, uh, and asking those reporters and those media people to, to envision what I wanted and to ask them to close their eyes. They're, I'm like, I asked you guys to close your eyes, and I'm not going to go further until all of you close your eyes. And all the ones out there listening, they know, listening, they know who I'm referring to. And when they did that, then I could start the vision. I really believe if you can visualize it, you can achieve it. And you have to see it done if you really want to have all your energy, all your focus all your faith heading in the right direction. And I think there's nothing bigger than sports visualization and visualization in all aspects of your life.
0: I've seen and read about um, Olympic athletes using visualization. It seems to be a little more common than people might realize in, with athletes.
3: I think it's almost a lost art, I really do. And and it shouldn't be exclusive to just athletics. I mean, if you're visualizing Mr. Wright and you visualize, visualize him enough, you'll know what he, what he looks like when he steps into your life, <laughs> him, him or her. Good point.
0: Well, I've got to ask you about the uh, football game that everyone remembers from this season, the upset of Clemson. Um, and I watched an ESPN interview that you gave where they asked, um, you know, why you won that game. And you talked about that your team had some close losses in the two previous games and that you felt there was sort of a loss of faith. So what what did you do to help the team – Get back from that. And I'm, I'm
3: not quite sure that's that's exactly how I said it. What I what what I what I believe I said was I thought there was a lack of faith from outside the team.
0: Outside and, the and team, and it's
3: and it's so important that the team is linked with the community, that the team is linked with the administration, that the team is linked with the university, and I never felt that there was a lack of faith within the team, but all those other Things that I mentioned are all part of our family the university, the administration, the community. So I felt like there was a, there was a, there was troubling, there was bubbling waters, that there was a lack of faith outside of us. And uh, I was excited that we had an opportunity to re energize the administration, the university, and the community to keep the faith belief without evidence that this thing is going to get done that we are going to be winners it's going to happen it's going to happen soon and all you're going to be around to see it neat well it's, it was very memorable for everyone
0: much this has been nice talking to you my guest has been syracuse university head football coach dino babers i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show Healthlink on air And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Ivana Viani is a recent Harvard Med graduate. She's preparing now for a career as a psychiatrist. She has served as editor-in-chief of Third Space, Harvard Med's journal of literature and the arts. Listen to the two distinct voices she creates in her poem, Tiny Observations. You are not like me. You do not see the layers of my irises as I see yours. There is a greater amount of brown pigment in your right eye, agglomerated at three o'clock. Or the curve of my acromion when I lay on my side in your bed. Yours casts a deep oval shadow that reminds me of the Wacachina valleys at sunset when the light is golden and thick. Or the arrangement of the veins at the top of my foot. Yours are thinner and straighter than mine, and there is a small aneurysm on the lateral aspect of your fourth right metatarsal. You don't notice the scars my nakedness bears. You have a dozen tiny, well-heeled lacerations on your left upper arm and one on the forearm from when you were 20 and alone, suffering life silently. Were the shapes and sizes of the beauty marks across my back Yours exhibit a regular pattern of lightly pigmented nevi, except for the one on your left lower flank, which is multicolored, irregular, larger than others. Don't worry, it's not cancerous, I examined it. Or the small vestigial tendons I have in both my wrists. So do you, and they are the parts of your hands I kiss when you're asleep and dreaming of the girl who left you last summer. You are not like me, not a doctor, not a woman, You do not see the things that I notice.
0: Been Upstate's Health Link on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on Health Link on Air, making medical records available on mobile devices. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, Health Link. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.